Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 1016. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. (coughs) Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cities of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May God bless to, your, to our understanding the reading from his holy word. Please keep your Bibles open to James chapter 5. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, I pray that we would study it with uh, understanding the weight of what we read here, that we are listening to your very voice spoken to us, Father. I pray that you would give us hearts to hear your word and me a mouth to speak it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. We pray this now in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So as I uh, gain more experience in preaching, certain questions arise. Uh, Some of them I find answers to in books, and some I can't. One of the more recent questions that that rose as I was preparing the sermon that I can't find an answer to is, how many Lord of the Rings references will you all continue to tolerate? I ask this because it is very hard to look at this passage about hoarding riches and not think of Smog the Terrible, the dragon and chief calamity of J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, a creature of immense greed and arrogance and sure of his supremacy as he slumbers on a pile of gold that he cannot spend or do anything with, but which he guards jealously. Now, I am not a fan of the movie version of the story The Hobbit, But there is one scene in this movie that I find very insightful. In the uh, third movie, actually, as Smog is flying over the nearby uh, village of Lake Town and wreaking havoc, we we have this huge dragon in the sky flying overhead, lighting buildings on fire with his breath. People are running for their lives. But there's another dragon. There's a dragon in a boat on a lake a boat that is filled with the wealth of all the people, a boat that could carry dozens of people to safety. Yet this boat has one man in it, a few guards, and a huge mound of treasure. I am speaking, of course, of the master of Lake Town, who, in seeing the dragon coming to destroy the town, flees with as much gold as he can carry. 
We even see him at one point, as, as chaos is going on around him, cry out most unconvincingly, oh, that we could save a few of these poor souls. So what became of this man? Well, we shall see. As I said, I bring this image up because we are now in a section in James's letter with a specific focus placed on the love of the controlling love of such treasures, the love of money, the love of rich possessions, of fine things, even of status and power and pleasure. A love that takes the place of the love of God and the love of others in our hearts. Look at how James begins his letter. He says, come now. This is the same interjection we see in 4.13 where James is calling the wealthy merchants to plan and prepare as with the Lord in their sights. And now James calls out the rich. He says, come now. Be reasonable. Pay attention to what I have to say. And perhaps this brings forward to us a question. In calling out the rich in this way, is James saying that to be rich is a sin? Certainly not. For the testimony of Scripture is that the origin of sin is not in our circumstances, but is what is in our hearts, the fallen human condition that we all have. Because somebody can be poor and have the same controlling love for what they do not have as the rich person can for what they do have. However, that being said, we must not ignore what Jesus says on the subject of riches. And I take this from Mark's Gospel. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is Mark 10.25. Now, contrary to uh, some uh, opinions, the eye of the needle is not a gate in Jerusalem where a camel had to get down on his knees to crawl through. No, Jesus is expression in hyperbole, the sheer improbability of such an act. The largest pack animal these people would have known, going through the smallest, the most narrow opening they could have imagined. It is quite impossible, he says. Now why? Why is this such an impossibility for a rich person to enter heaven? Uh, Consider what one commentator says. So powerful is the hold which wealth has on the heart of the natural man, He is held by its bewitching charm and is thereby prevented from obtaining the attitude of heart and mind necessary for entrance into the kingdom. We could even say that the rich person is the poster child for the condition of being in love with the world. They have everything they could ever want. The people of the world love them. There is little to restrain them. Little to restrain their enjoyment of all sorts of vanities and distractions and pleasures. Man, it sounds a lot like the life that many Americans, many of us live. It is easy for them, for the rich person, to live lives of complete inebriation in all of those distractions which can be had at the right price which can hold off any thought of God or the fact that one day we all will stand before him. To put it simply, the rich person runs the risk of falling into that terrible condition of being friends with the world. And to be friends with the world, as James says elsewhere, is to be an enemy with God. Now, on the other hand, that you have the poor person. And I don't mean poor in comparison, I mean the genuinely poor person. 
They may find little comfort in this world, little to distract them. There's less they can obtain by their meager means. And oftentimes, they are very aware of how little control they have in life and just how precious it is and that life is not made up of an abundance of things. Also, consider the following quote from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. The devil can prevail more in temptations with fullness than with want and emptiness. Why? Because although there are temptations in a poor condition, they are not so pleasing to a man's own nature, as is the temptation of a full condition. A poor man is tempted, but what is he tempted to? He is tempted to impatience, but that is not a pleasing thing. Rather, it is a tedious thing. The temptations of the poor man are not as well suited to his nature when they are compared to the temptations of a wealthy man. Basically, he's saying that anxiety, covetousness, impatience, those things that may be the temptation of a poor man are not pleasing. They're not as pleasing as temptations of luxury or gold lust or self-indulgence. So we see that wealth has a great danger inherent in it. A person can easily be lost in it and the lie that this is what matters. In our text today, James pronounces, uh, makes a excuse me, he makes a pronouncement on such dangers. Uh, we see in our text that he is speaking and um, making a prophetic calling of warning to the rebellious. He is calling them to consider the danger they are in. And the question is, is James speaking to people in the church who are behaving this way? It's possible. But it seems more likely that he is addressing those outside of the church, or maybe those who have visited their gatherings, yet, but are, were not yet members of the congregation. I come to this conclusion based, based off of James chapter 2, where James talks about um, partiality to the rich over the poor. He says the following, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It seems that James is addressing these oppressors and these blasphemers. And what does he call them to do? He calls them to weep and howl. Literally, the Greek says, weep while wailing. He calls them to express inexpressible, inconsolable grief and terror and horror. Why does he call them to make such cries? Well, we see the reason why and what follows. Your riches have rotted. Your garments, they have become moth-eaten. Your silver and your gold has corroded. That is, everything that you love has been destroyed. But the question here is, is, if their stuff has already been destroyed, then how can we call them rich? Well, for you may have noticed that James is speaking in the past tense here. What James is doing is speaking in a tense called the prophetic perfect. He is speaking as if the things have already happened because their doom is so certain that he can. You see, it is not a question of when these things will be destroyed, if these things will be destroyed, but it is a question of when they will be destroyed. And why is it so certain? Why is it so certain that such riches will rot so that we can speak of them as if they already have? Well, 
That's just the nature of such things, isn't it? Cars break down. Books crumble and fall apart. Money is squandered or stolen. Moths creep into closets filled with unused clothing, and they fall to shreds. And and in the end, when God returns, when this world is made new, all such riches will be shown for the valuelessness that they have, that they are nothing compared to his riches. And perhaps these, the language we have here, moth, rust, rot, perhaps this is uh, familiar to you. Well, James here is most certainly referring to Christ's teaching on the subject, which we find in Matthew's Gospel. This is what he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the conclusion of this teaching of Jesus is that whatever one spends their life treasuring, whatever one spends their life chasing after, that is what they really serve. It is either God Almighty or they are serving money. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is a literal word there that we translate into money. And this is a borrowed word, which can refer to worldly wealth or possessions, but it is a word that also became to be used for a god, the money god. You see, you cannot serve two gods. You can only serve either the true god, Yahweh, or you can serve the false money god. God will not share his glory with another. And anyone who claims to love both is a liar. And this is because those who love God will increasingly be just as jealous for God's place in their heart as he is himself. So Jesus is clear in his teaching. The Bible is clear that you are either amassing heavenly treasures or earthly ones. Eternal treasures or those that will rot. And not only were such treasures rot away, but their rot, their corrosion, the poison of them will stand out and testify against the one who loves them, who has given allegiance to them, who has hoarded them like a dragon. This is what it says in verse 3. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You see, those who love such things with the ardor of worship think that their idols will satisfy them eternally. But in reality they will find that they are left eternally thirsting, eternally longing for a drop of water to cool their burning tongue. Not only that, but these, the corrosion of their gold and their, the rot of their garments will stand as evidence against them. Evidence to who? Evidence before the Lord God Almighty, the one who is going to be judge over the universe. Imagine, if you will, a person standing before the judgment seat with mounds of moldering and pitted objects around them. And the question is raised, is this what you have to show for your life? This? This is what you gave your life to? This is what you turn your back on your God for? Those who give their love to such things will find that the ruin which they clung to will be evidence of their cosmic treason 
that they rejected their God for pitiful things. It will be the evidence that they turned their back on their creator and worshipped the creation. It will be evidence of their foolishness. And such evidence will damn them to the torment of fires. You see, the corrosion which destroyed the things they love will chew on their flesh for eternity. They loved perishable things. Therefore, they will perish eternally. Now, this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Most of the time, we hoard up things to protect ourselves, to provide for ourselves, for posterity, to lay up things for a time of need. However, in reality, such treasures that are heaped up are heaped up on the last day to be treasures of judgment and damnation for all eternity. James compares these people to cows grazing in a field, gorging themselves on rich grass, thinking that they are doing this for their own good, not aware that they are inching themselves ever closer to being just right for the slaughter. Last Sunday, Pastor West spoke of the rich man in Jesus' parable. A man who lived in the lap of luxury, dressed in purple garments, unconcerned with eternity or his standing before God. A servant, he was a servant of the money God. He was preparing himself for slaughter. And we saw that slaughter in the text. So do you see the great peril of being a lover of such things? Those who love these things, as I said, with the ardor of worship, with complete control over their lives, they are storing up for themselves the sort of testimony against themselves that will show on the last day who they served, that they were not a lover of God, but a lover of self. However, James is not done yet. He is not done displaying the depravity of such idolatry of money. For you see, when a person cherishes something so completely that it consumes them, they are able to justify any action, anything that they would do, even straight-up cruelty and malice and disregard for the lives of others. Because if an idol has your greatest love, if that is your greatest good, if you love things the most that are vulnerable, anything will be a competition or a uh, tool for them, or even a danger to them, especially other people. Look at verse 4 in our text. Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Behold, James cries, a damning piece of evidence. You thought you'd be a shrewd businessman, did you? You thought you'd save a few bucks by being cheap, by wringing dry the helpless and the poor, those who can do nothing for their own defense? Well, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of many armies, he sees, he sees your cruelty, and he can certainly do something about it. You see, in those days, wealthy landowners would hire unskilled workers to work their fields. And uh, typically the wages for such a a day of work was uh, a denarius. That was equivalent to a day's wages in the Roman world. But even a denarius itself was hardly enough to live off of. You could get grain with a denarius, but if you wanted something like a lemon, that would cost you a whole day's wages. So if you're living hand to mouth, 
you were dependent on getting that denarius every day. So imagine spending an entire day at work and being denied your rightly earned wages. Such an act was cruel and heartless, all to save a pittance of what these people actually owned. These people owned a lot, yet they would be willing to kill and slaughter for the sake of one little silver coin. But that's not all. Look at verse 6. These people, these cruel, these wealthy idolaters, such people are corrupt and twisted in their justice. They have no sense of right or wrong. They're willing to condemn and murder the righteous one. Now, this could mean that they are willing to condemn and murder the innocent, the one who has done nothing wrong. I think it is more likely, based off of what we've read already in James chapter 2, that this is speaking of their treatment of the people of God. Such people are so engrossed in their idolatry that they are willing to raise their hand against God's precious people, his church, his bride for whom Christ's blood was shed. The foolishness, the arrogance to set yourself up against God in this way and to persecute those for whom Christ died. And those who set themselves up against God and against his people, one day they will reap what they sow. One day they will reap, as it's said, they will reap the whirlwind. Now, one commentator asked in his discussion of this text whether the rich people that James is addressing actually ever heard this, uh, this proclamation. And perhaps some did. We see in James that they did have some wealthy people come to their uh, meetings. However, I believe that what we have here is that this proclamation was given more for the sake of Christians who were listening. So that they would behold the doom of idolatry. They would see what it looks like and its outcomes. I don't know, many of you here have probably been to driving school a long time ago. And uh, back in the day, they used to show these videos at driving school to scare you. Uh, they, were, they were videos that showed the dangers of reckless driving. Oftentimes, they would graphically display horrible automobile accidents, showing uh, mangled cars and twisted bodies to scare young drivers into, into being not reckless when they drive. And I think what we have here, as well as a proclamation against evil idolaters, is a call to display the end of those who hold to such idolaters, to scare straight the Christians who are listening to this, who may be prone to be envious of the wealthy, to wish that they had more. What James is doing is showing us the horrors and dangers of reckless idolatry. And if this is the end of reckless idolatry, that all of our goods will be destroyed and we will be destroyed with them, then as Peter says, if the world is to be thus destroyed, what what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? In other words, if this is to be the end of unrepentant idolaters, how should you live as one of those he has saved, one of those who claims the name of Christ. And while you may not be guilty of literal murder, how often have you put yourself or your agenda or some chief goal before your, uh, in your life before your God, your family, or your brethren? 
How have you neglected your God-given duty to your fellow man and your brethren in the Lord? Because you are more concerned about your own wants. And isn't it the case that we can justify any action for the things that we see as most important? So what if my parents don't want me to do it? What they don't know won't hurt them. I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can worship him out on the boat fishing. Oh, it's just a little white lie, after all. And telling them the truth might just hurt their feelings. You see, for the sake of some goal, we neglect our family. We set aside the spiritual health of our children. We ignore the awkward and the outcast for the cool kids and the popular crowd, all because of what it does for us. We lash out with our tongs, slandering and gossiping and breaking down those for whom Christ shed his precious blood. And in doing this, we may pronounce our, while we do this, though we may pronounce our love for our God and others, in reality, aren't we doing anything but? Kind of like the master of Lake Town, rowing on his boat full of gold, crying out in a false lament, oh, I wish that we could save some of these. So what have you, what have I been justifying for the sake of our idols? Something that we do that we would not approve if someone else did them, especially if they did them to us. So what, and for all intents and purposes, are you actually worshiping? Now, to go back to this master of Lake Town, I asked a question that I didn't answer. What happened to him? And I think in the movie version of the story, it's quite poetic. You see, Smog was shot down by a single arrow, and he plummeted down to the lake. And he plummeted down right on top of the master of Lake Town, that little dragon, that little copy of Smog, so that the Smog and the master of Lake Town and all that wealth for which he lived for were all crushed under the weight of the dragon's fall. And the reason this is poetic well, is because we do have a, we have a similar situation that is going to happen in the world. We have a real dragon that exists. Revelation depicts the devil as a dragon, the chief rebel of all those who reject the true worship of God. And when this dragon finally meets his doom at the end of the ages, like the master of Lake Town, all who followed him will be crushed in his fall and share in his ruin. So that is the end of these treasures, this wealth that James is warning us against. And as Jesus said, there is another treasure to be had. There are eternal treasures, treasures that cannot be removed by anything in this world. <clears throat> and this eternal treasure is found in Jesus Christ. This eternal treasure, I would say, is Jesus Christ. Now, what is different between the two? Let us compare them and see which one is worth having. The one brings rot and death. What has Christ promised us? Eternal life. Treasures that will never stain nor grow old nor be taken away from us. Treasures that are kept by him in heaven for those who believe in him. The treasures of this world, they call out for more and more from you. They put a burden on you that they will not lift, a burden that will weigh you down and crush you. But Jesus, 
he takes your burden on himself. He raises it and he bears it on the cross and he dies for your sins. He is your master. He's such a good master. Jesus became poor for our sake. Listen to these words of this well-known hymn. Thou who is rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Jesus, who created all things, who owns all things, who is God most splendid, took on the form of a servant, lived a life of poverty, died a tortuous death. Can you say, can your treasures, can those things you tend to give your heart to say the same thing? Has money died on the cross for your sins? Has popularity lived a poor life for your sake? Has pleasure, has wealth, has power, has anything lied in the grave for three days for your sins? And did any of these things rise again for the promise of eternal life for you? None of them have. So God has said in his word that all who trust in worldly wealth will come to a wretched end. So what will be the end of those who trust in Christ? Hear now his words from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So consider for yourself, who has the better promises? Which treasure will you lay up for yourselves in these last days before Christ returns? Will you continue to chase after treasures of corruption and rot? Or treasures of eternal glory? Obtained by Christ. Jesus calls you to drink deeply from the well of his grace. He alone can give you that life that is abundant, that is complete, that brings with it fullness of joy and peace and contentment that lasts for an eternity. Therefore, if you hear his voice, heed his call today. Seek his grace to remove the idols of the world and the flesh that cling to your hearts. He will do this. God has promised that he will remove these idols from you. He has promised to give his spirit to all who ask. Set your gaze on the glorious hopes which belong on you in Christ Jesus. Become a connoisseur, an expert of all the riches which should be had in Christ. We make ourselves connoisseurs of so many things in this world, of coins, of gold, of music, of so many things. Let us be connoisseurs of God's grace. Let us be experts in who Christ is and everything that we have in him. And when we become experts in that, 
Everything else will be worthless in comparison. Christ calls you today. Treasure him most of all, and you will have treasures indeed. For amid all of the fool's gold of this world, there is nothing that is great as a treasure as our God and our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, have just heard your word, I pray, Lord, that you would work in all of our hearts to treasure you most of all, to treasure Christ, to cast aside anything else that would weigh us down, to release all these things of this world that will only kill us in the end, Lord, to hold on to those eternal treasures which can be had in Christ, which is eternal life, which is to be with you forever and to, and to never part from you, Lord God. We pray this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.